Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, the Doctrine of the Trinity, Part 5. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. We've examined the scriptural data concerning the doctrine of the Trinity and saw that the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are distinct persons, and yet each is God. We now want to turn to uh, a historical survey of how great Christian thinkers have sought to formulate this doctrine into a systematic package. And we're going to begin with the early Greek apologists of the second century. These were men like uh, Justin Martyr, Tatian, Theophilus, Athenagoras, and so on. Now, you might not have ever heard of these men, but these were some of the earliest Christian authors writing in defense of the Christian faith during the second century. And since they wrote in Greek, they're known collectively as the Greek apologists. These thinkers sought to connect the divine word of the prologue of John's gospel the Logos, whom John says was in the beginning with God and who was God, with the Logos as it plays a role in the thought of the Jewish Hellenistic uh, philosopher Philo of Alexandria. Now when we say that Philo was a Hellenistic Jew, what one means is that he was Uh, heavily influenced in his thought by Greek thought. Hellenistic comes from the Greek word Elene, which means uh, Greek. Uh, And so as a Hellenistic Jew, his thinking is pervaded by the categories of Greek philosophy. He lived in Alexandria in Egypt um, during uh, the uh, same time as the New Testament. He was born in 25 BC and died in A.D. 40. And the Christian apologists attempted to use the work of Philo in connection with the Gospel of John to articulate uh, a sort of Logos Christology, or a doctrine of Christ, based on Philo's uh, thinking. For Philo, the Logos is the reason or the mind of God, who created the world and who imbued the world with its rational structure. And similarly, for these Greek apologists also believed that the Father existing alone um, before the creation of the world had within himself, imminent within himself, his reason uh, or word which existed in him prior to creation. And then somehow this word proceeded forth from God the Father, rather like a spoken word proceeds forth from someone who utters that word, and it becomes a distinct individual from the Father. And it was through this individual, through the Logos, that the Father created the world, and the Logos then ultimately becomes incarnate as Jesus of Nazareth. Now, this procession of the Logos 
from the mind of the Father uh, could be conceived to take place at the moment of creation when God created the world. That was the moment at which the Logos proceeded from the Father's mind. Or else, alternatively, it could be thought to be an eternal procession that never had a beginning. And the church fathers were often fond of using the analogy of the sun's rays proceeding from the sun as long as the sun exists. If the sun had existed uh, eternally, the beams, the light beams would always be proceeding from the sun. It's not as though they had a beginning to their procession. It was an eternal procession. So let me read to you a, a, a statement by Athenagoras of this doctrine of the procession of the Logos or the Son from the Father. Here's what Athenagoras writes. The Son of God uh, is the word of the Father in ideal form and energizing power. For in his likeness and through him all things came into existence, which presupposes that the Father and the Son are one. Now, since the Son is in the Father and the Father in the Son by a powerful unity of spirit, the Son of God is the mind and reason of the Father. He is the first begotten of the Father. The term is used not because he came into existence, for God, who is eternal mind, had in himself his word or reason from the beginning, since he was eternally rational, but because he came forth to serve as ideal form and energizing power for everything material. The Holy Spirit we regard as an effluence of God, which flows forth from him and returns like a ray of the sun. This is from his treatise entitled, A Plea for the Christians, chapter 10. So according to the Logos doctrine then, um, there is only one God, but this God is not an undifferentiated unity. Rather, certain aspects of his mind become expressed as distinct individuals. The Lagos doctrine of the Greek apologists thus involves a fundamental reinterpretation of the fatherhood of God. God is seen not to be uh, merely the father of all mankind or the father of Israel or even uh, simply the father of Jesus of Nazareth. Rather, he is the father from whom the Logos is begotten before all worlds. The Logos is begotten of the Father from eternity. So Christ is not merely the only begotten Son of God in virtue of his incarnation. You might say that the reason Jesus is the only begotten Son of God is because he was born of a virgin, as in the Gospel of Luke. But what these Christian apologists were saying is that the uh, Son is begotten of the Father even in his pre-incarnate deity. 
he proceeds out of the Father from eternity. And this logos doctrine of the Greek apologists was taken up into Western theology by the great church father and theologian Irenaeus in his treatise against heresies. Irenaeus identifies God's word or logos with the Son and he identifies God's wisdom with the Holy Spirit. So God's word is the Son, his wisdom is the Holy Spirit, and this then uh, will be taken up into Western theology. For better or worse, like it or not, this is one of the clearest examples of the influence of philosophical thinking upon theology. Because this doctrine, which then gets uh, canonized at the Council of Nicaea later on, is formed out of a kind of synthesis between John's Gospel and the thought of Philo of Alexandria and the Middle Platonism that he represented. Any comments or discussion about this Logos Christology? Uh, Taiwan. Um, when we say God is formless and, and the Son is the form of God. Well, now that's what Athenagoras said, didn't he? He, he said that the Logos is the word of the Father in ideal form and energizing power. And he says that in the quotation I read because he said he came forth to serve as ideal form and energizing power for everything material. And I take it that what he is reflecting there is Philo's doctrine of creation. The idea there is that the pattern for the physical material world is in the mind of God the Creator, specifically in the Logos. Okay. And so Philo compares the Logos to the mind of an architect who is planning a city and who has the city plan all in his mind, all laid out, and then hires construction workers to actually build the city on the plan that he has in mind. And I suspect that that's what Athenagoras is thinking here in calling the sun the ideal form and then creating power of the physical world. So this is, as I say, a kind of marriage of Greek philosophical thinking with, with John's Gospel. Yes, over here. Okay, so Logos means word, right? Yes, okay, or so reason. It can mean either one. Okay, so Jesus is the only begotten of the Father because he's the only word God ever spoke or something like that, and, and, and the Spirit is God's wisdom or God's thought. So you can't really use reason at the same time if they're different anyway. Because the reason will be the yeah. Spirit, right? I mean, obviously, these fellows are really struggling here to try to make sense of this, right? Um, because it's not easy to see the difference between reason and wisdom, right. is it? But what this reflects is biblical metaphors or personifications. In John's Gospel, you have the Logos, the Word, which was in the beginning with God, and then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, John says. That's where you get this figure of the Logos. Wisdom 
comes from Proverbs chapter 8, where wisdom is personified as a woman who goes out into the streets and calls uh, young men to come to her and learn of her and learn how to live uh, properly. And the author of Proverbs encourages his son, commands his son to learn of wisdom, to get wisdom above all things. Get wisdom. Sit at the feet of lady wisdom and, and benefit. So th th this is reflecting these biblical personifications of attributes of God. And it made a nice triad. You've got the Father, you've got his word, and you've got his wisdom. And that seemed to them to be a sort of pattern for the Trinity. Yeah. And so when you say seen, you're, you're not saying that all modern scholars see it this exact way. Because I mean, even in the Bible, uh, they were talking about the spirit. I think it was Paul that said it. I can't remember where. But he said that who knows the mind of God except for, or who, who knows God except for his mind and that, that we have God's mind because we have his spirit. So that would make sense if we have not necessarily a manifestation of God in the sense of like a physical manifestation, but like a spiritual one of his mind that we have his spirit. So, I mean, that is, that's elsewhere, not just in the Gospel of John. Um, I, I mean, the Gospel of John. So it does make sense. But I'm saying, what do modern scholars see? Do they, do they agree with this oh, doctrine of the Trinity? I, I think that, and I'm glad you asked the question, as we'll see, I think that modern Orthodox Christians would look back on this and see it as a first attempt at crafting a doctrine of the Trinity. Inadequate, but groping, trying to figure out categories in which to express it. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's an attempt to do systematic theology. You've got this raw biblical data, now how do you make sense of it? Here is the earliest attempt to do it. And I think in the end, we'd say this is inadequate. Um, it, it doesn't rise to the full character of what we want to say, but it's, it's an attempt. The Logos would proceed from the Father at the moment of creation seems unacceptable. And even they themselves, I think, came to recognize that. With Athenagoras, for example, you have the procession eternal and not just beginning at the moment of creation, as it was for some of them. Yeah, Steve. Yeah, sounds like Athenagoras' statement is tying Plato and actually one subset of what he said. Yeah. Just tying in with Plato's forms. Because right. Because they're all the forms. They came from God. And that's that's Athenagoras' view, and that's Philo's view. What Steve is mentioning is that in Plato, uh, who you remember is one of the greatest of the ancient Greek philosophers. Plato thought that this world is merely a shadow or a copy of a kind of ideal world in which perfect geometrical shapes exist, like triangles and circles. And in this physical world, there are no perfect triangles or circles. Oh my God. <laughs> well, this, 
this, this is about Plato's parable of the cave, <laughs> where he says that people dwell in the shadowy uh, world uh, and uh, need to be enlightened by getting in contact with the forms. Uh, well, I think at this point, um, it would be pointless to continue. <laughs> so, uh, that we, we've actually come nicely to the, the uh, breaking point. <laughs> No. So it, it is Platonic in the sense that Plato thought these forms existed and the physical world was patterned on these forms. But Plato didn't think these forms were created by God. On the contrary, he thought that God looked to the forms and then built the world on that model. They were independent of God. They were uncreated reality and God simply created the physical world on the pattern of the forms. Well, for a Jewish monotheist like Philo, that was simply unacceptable. You couldn't have this independent, non-created reality existing alongside of God. So he moved the forms into the mind of God as God's ideas. And then it was on the basis of his own ideas that like an architect, God planned and then built the physical world. And you find this in the Greek apologists, where they make an advance over Philo, I think, is that they think this logos is not simply imminent in the mind of God, like the reason of an architect, but that somehow it comes forth from him as a separate individual, that the logos emanates out of God and becomes, in, as it were, another person. Uh, and this way they get a multiplicity of persons, you see, who are divine. It's, it's not a full Trinitarian doctrine such as we'll find later on, but they're, they're, they're struggling to express it. Yes, you want to follow up? Not to diminish the Greeks too quickly. I think the God they said that looked at the form of the little gods, they believe if you let a heroic life, you go into the, your family of spirits and the people pray to it. And there were Greek philosophers said that the little gods are not the real gods, there is one God. Okay, uh, fair enough, Steve. Yeah, in Plato's Timaeus, he refers to this God who looks to the ideal forms and creates the world as a demiurge. Uh, and this demiurge is, as you put it, a kind of lowercase g, God. But then, where is God in, in Plato's system? Well, the, the, the most you could get would be the form of the good, which is the highest form, the good. But the problem there, Steve, is that the good is not a person. The good is not a concrete reality. The good is this abstract form, and so it's not really God, even though it is the sort of ultimate reality in Plato's view. So the advance of people like Philo over Plato, I think, is that they say that this world of the forms doesn't exist external to God. It exists in the mind of God. And the Logos who creates the world is not some sort of lower class demiurge, but the Logos is God himself. Any other discussion of this view? Uh, yeah, Patrick? Yeah, I just uh, wanted to kind of go back to the word itself, logos. Okay. And, and it seems to me to be a really 
thick word. Mm. There's not a really good English translation of it. Is that safe to say? Well, what I would say is this. It is a rich, or as you put it, a thick word. And so it can be translated by different English words. It's not that we fail to have English words to express it, but rather that it has multiple meanings. There are other terms like this that are used in scripture. I've been studying one this week. Um, the term dikaiosune in the Greek. Dikaiosune can mean either righteousness or justice. So when Paul talks about the righteousness of God in Romans 3, this could also mean the justice of God. And so you kind of have a, a pun in Romans 3.26. Paul says, God is just and the justifier of him who has faith in Christ Jesus. He is both just and the justifier. Um, but at the same time, he talks about God's righteousness and how this is given to us in Christ. So the word is multivalent, and I think that's also true of logos. The word logos is multivalent. It has different meanings, and the context will determine the meaning that it has in that context. So when we read these um, quotations in English from these Greek apologists, and we see words like reason or word, you, we have to understand that the English translators have chosen an English word that they think best captures the original in that context. But for a Greek reader, an original reader of that, this may be a multivalent concept that has a, a richer meaning than we would realize. Cody? I just wanted to follow up. All right. I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't realize I picked someone else. Um, so if you were talking to a Greek person and you said logos means word or reason. Yes. I feel like they would always say, well, close but not exact. Uh -huh. And there's a nuance there that I don't know that, I mean, we have to approach it from many different angles, but that nuance is just that word to a real Greek means something that I don't think we, we have to really struggle to translate. Uh -huh. Well, and I, I mean, logos often does just mean word. Um, so, right, I, I would just reiterate what I just said, is that it's okay. a multivalent term, it is a rich term, <laughs> and the nuances might be lost on us through our English translations. Cody? Yeah, so, <clears throat> I noticed when they describe the logos, these Greek apologists, you know, they use words like they say power and whatnot. It sounds yeah. very impersonal. Like, do they believe that the logos is a distinct person? Like, I mean, how far were they in that department? Like, yeah, okay, I'm glad to have these questions because you're pressing these same issues that I'm wondering about. And that's why I said that the Logos comes forth as a distinct, and I use the word individual. I didn't use the word person. It's not entirely clear yet that they had the modern concept of a person as a sort of self-conscious individual. Uh, now maybe they did, but it's just not altogether clear. I think it becomes clear when we get to these later thinkers, as we'll see in our next section. But it does make you wonder to what extent did they think of the Logos as 
a, a distinct person from the Father, and the Spirit is a distinct person. And how could the mind of the Father be a different person than the Father? I mean, if the mind of the Father proceeded out, then what happened to the Father's mind? Did he lose his mind? <laughs> you don't want to say that. So, again, as I said before, these are groping attempts to try to express what we've seen in the New Testament. Well, I say that because the law goes, it's obviously Jesus, because it says yes. the Word became flesh, and Jesus right. is clearly a person, or, you know, right. somebody that has a will and speaks and all that, so it would seem that, you know, you just kind of rewind, well, the, the law goes have to be a person. Great question, um, and, and not always clear, I would say. Yes, is that Jim back there? Yeah. Uh, Bill, can you shed some light on uh, how, in what ways did these philosophers even properly understand or misunderstand John's use of the Logos in his Christology in the Gospel? Yeah. That's a really tough question because we don't know what really lies behind John's Logos doctrine in his opening chapter of his gospel. I've done considerable study of this in connection with my work on God's aseity. And it seems that John himself is reflecting the same tradition that you have embodied in Philo of Alexandria. The idea of the Logos as a creative principle of God's mind wasn't original to Philo. He expresses it clearly, but it's not his own idea. It is characteristic of what's called Middle Platonism. And this Middle Platonism is what I talked about a moment ago when I said that these Middle Platonists took the Platonic realm of the forms and put it in the mind of God as his ideas. Um, and it may well be that this is what John is reflecting in this kind of Middle Platonism because so much of his vocabulary and emphases are to be found in Philo. The, the, the similarities, the parallels are just stunning. They're really striking. But in, at the end of the day, it, it's hard to know. Um, I would say that most New Testament scholars would say that if John didn't know Philo's writings, that at least the author of the prologue of John's Gospel comes out of the same Hellenizing Jewish tradition as Philo. This middle Platonic view uh, of thinking of the Logos as sort of the mind of God and the agent through whom um, God creates the world. What is striking about John and which Philo could never have said, is that the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us as a historical person. And that's where John breaks the categories, so to speak, and um, where we need to recognize John's originality and, and contribution, that he does think of the Logos as not some impersonal principle he thinks it's Christ um, who has become incarnate for our, our benefit. Yes, James? 
Oh, um, I'm, I'm sorry, I was looking for the microphone. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm so used to it. Shed some light on this too. I don't know why. It's interesting that, um, and I've heard this before, that uh, the uh, Platonic uh, philosophy had an influence on here, but, but where it's quite different though is wasn't Plato the one who said that the flesh was evil and that the spirit was good? In, in, in which case, then, that... I think I, you're thinking of Gnosticism. Um, well, but isn't that based on Platonic philosophy, though? It, similar. Similar. Okay. Um, Gnosticism had the idea that the world of the material and the physical is positively evil, and it is the spiritual realm that is good and pure. Um, I think that would be inaccurate to represent Plato that way. What Plato did think is that this ideal realm is more real than this realm. He thought that this physical world, as I say, is just a sort of shadowy existence that isn't really very substantial, that it's, it's that the real uh, world is this ideal realm. But I don't think that he would therefore characterize the physical world as being evil uh, in the way that the Gnostics did. Okay, take uh, Yeah, in talking about uh, systematic theology, sometimes um, some Christians get really kind of defensive or scared about you know talking about philosophy and bring that into theology. Um, but it seems to me, it seems like John is using a Hellenistic style of philosophy in the way he wrote his gospel. So would you say that you can't separate the philosophy of what even a person like John, who's Jewish, is using in his own writing of the gospel itself? See, Kevin, I think, is exactly right. I, I said that the Greek apologists' use of Philo was a great example of the influence of philosophy upon theology. But what Kevin rightly says is, wait a minute, this has already happened in the Gospel of John. Already in John's prologue, you have the author of the fourth gospel adopting these middle Platonic categories talking about the Logos. This is not from the Old Testament or Jewish wisdom literature. John's doctrine originates in this sort of middle Platonism. So I think you're quite right in saying that already in the pages of the New Testament, we see the interplay of philosophy and theology together in formulating uh, doctrine. All right, well, let us close then with a word of prayer. And uh, next week, we'll turn to another primitive Christology, Father, thank you for the time we've spent together this morning, and we pray that the stimulus that this has been to our minds uh, would cause us to go ever deeper into uh, Christian truth and our faith um, so that we would be better equipped to serve you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. The copyright for the content of this recording is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.